Welcome to My Big Break, a new podcast series from Motorsport where I'll be meeting top drivers, team managers and technical directors, asking them one simple question. What was the big break that led them to where they are today? I'm Chris Medland and in this episode I'm joined by Roman Grosjean to discuss his rise to Formula 1, getting dropped by Renault and having to fight back, the people that helped him return to the grid and the way his second chance in the sport panned out before that Bahrain crash and his fresh start in the States. It has been a bit of a roller coaster ride that has been full of important lessons and experiences. So Roman, thank you very much for joining us. Let's start with how you are, because you recently underwent surgery on one of your hands. What exactly was that for and how did it go? Yeah, uh, well, I think it went all right. Uh, You know, it was always planned that I would have a a skin graft, uh, at least on my index, and trying to remove some of the wounds just to make the skin a little bit better and the hand a little bit more flexible. I would say, you know, I was 95% okay, uh, but there were still some restrictions, so... We've been, we decided with the, the surgeon to take the month of November off and try to make it look a little bit more pretty and also a little bit less painful of a day. Well, obviously that's uh, Bahrain that caused that. And, and this podcast is about a big break. And in some ways, uh, I'm sure you reflect on Bahrain as one of those and in other ways, maybe differently, but we'll get to that stage of your career later. Uh, let's talk about when you were starting out first. We're going to go back a long, long way. You had a successful karting career. Uh, but how tough was it to fund the step up to single seaters? Because that's often a, a big barrier for drivers. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, so you know, I was lucky that my dad um, had made a good career as a lawyer, so he had some funds initially to pay for go karts, and then I went to do uh, a talent uh, shootout from Lista uh, and Switzerland, and I won that. So I got fifty thousand Swiss francs a day to race in the Swiss championship the year after, uh, which I did, uh, I think I got, it was 10 races. I got 10 pole, 10 win, 10 fastest lap, basically. <laughs> so <laughs> a very successful year. And then I had to step up to Formula 1, no, two liters in France and a little bit in Euro cup. And that's, uh, where my dad, you know, put a lot on the table. Uh, luckily it wasn't the same budget as today. I don't think I could go anywhere. Uh, in 2020 with, with the budget we had but we um yeah we went there he, he managed to pay for two years uh and the second year was french champion and then i joined the Renault driver development academy that then uh, was sorting out the financial side of it yeah that seemed to be um a very important step for you but it- you had to convince Renault, obviously, that you were someone that they wanted to back. Um, let's talk about 2005 then, your second year in French Formula Renault. Uh, and you started the season with two podiums, but then you had a tough second pair of races. And then you headed to Pau. Uh, then what happened? Can you remember? Well, there were a yellow line drawn track. <laughs> uh, and uh, you were not allowed to... It was the first one I turned to. The first one arriving in the yellow line would have the, you know, the priority over the Alpine because they didn't want any mess at the Alpine. And I think I was on pole and didn't have a great start, but I launched an, an incredible overtake of a long Gopi. I think on the outside of that corner, I, I reached the line first. There was a bit of a debate because uh, long was obviously not happy. Uh, but I followed the rules and that was, um, you know, one of my signature late break uh overtake that started there and um yeah from that point i think i won quite a few races and managed to get the championship before even the last race of the year yeah you say quite a few races i've got it down that you won 10 of the next 11 
yeah. and the only other one in that run you were disqualified from. So <laughs> I, I don't know if you, would you have won that race you were disqualified uh, from, or was that a? I can't remember, but I know it was it was a good year, uh, and you know then I went to see Renault. I went to see Red Bull, Toyota, and Renault at the day, uh, the academy. Red Bull they already had Swiss driver with Sebastian Buemi and Niliani. Uh, and they were not interested in Frenchman because they couldn't sell Red Bull in France. Then Toyota was more interested into Japanese driver. And I went to see Renault and they told me they were not interested in a Swiss driver because I, I used to race the Swiss flag at the day. And I told them I'm French as well. And they basically told me from now on, you're only going to be French uh, racing driver. And that's how I got into the program and um, managed to step up uh, all the way to Formula One. That must be quite strange being told you're going to be a different nationality of driver uh, just for the team to be happy. But was that a sign of how important it was for you to do anything you could to get support from a big team? Or at that point, if you spoke to Red Bull and Toyota as well, did you feel like it was inevitable that a big Formula One team was going to be supporting your career? Well, it was. I think it was inevitable. You know, the Formula 3 Euro Series of the day was uh, 700,000 euro a year, I think which is loads of money uh, and we couldn't afford it. So I had to have the back backup from, from someone from an academy. That's when we went to see them. Uh, if not, I think yeah, it would have been the end and I would have probably tried to be an aerodynamic engineer uh, in racing. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, for me, it was key uh, that uh, I was entering one of those driver academy and they would um, help me become professional. So what would you say was so important at that time was it getting the the backing of Renault in terms of talking to them and, and how did those talks go or do you think it was your performances before that that opened the door to those talks? it's definitely a performance that opened the door uh yeah it was definitely winning they we we had a talk a little bit the year before end of 2004 um but they weren't sure that you know had a, a bit of an up and down season i won a race as a rookie but also um, crashed twice in Po, <laughs> uh, whilst I was second and third. So, you know, typical Romagorge on first year is a bit um, up and down and, you know, some good stuff, but also some learning and finding the limits. And the, the year after, I just, um, you know, once the season started, I really dominated the, the championship. And um, I think they saw that. And it was always the case, you know, it was always one year to learn, one year to win. Uh, that went through Formula 3 and that was going as well in GP2 until I got the phone call to go to Formula One and didn't finish the 2009 GP2 season. Yeah, that, that all happened very quickly. I mean, what do you think really put you on the team's radar for an F1 seat originally? Do you think it was 2007 when you won the F3 Euro Series? Or, or was it maybe stepping up to bigger cars in 2008 when you did GP2 Asia? Well, I think it was a little bit of both. 2007 was a, was a key year with a lot of pressure because in my team, Fred Vassa's team, there were... Uh, Kamui Kobayashi was a Toyota driver, uh, Nico Hulkenberg, Willy Weber driver, and I was Renault with Flavio Briato. So you can imagine that Willy was telling Nico, if you don't win, you're out. I was being told, if you don't win, you're out. And Kamui was, prob uh, was probably told the same. So uh, it, was, it was a very you know, uh, competitive year. We were always pushing ourselves to the maximum limit. Um, and it was... Honestly, it was one of my best year that I really enjoyed. Uh, those cars were, were sensational. Uh, the team was great. So I won, the, I won the championship. Then I stepped up to GP2 for GP2 Asia. And then we had uh, Lewis Hamilton car from the GP2. 
and with a with I think it was still ASM at the time or IRT now, we just completely dominated the Asia series and that was incredible. Um, so I think at that point, yeah, they did realize that, okay, you know, that young guy may have something uh, to make it to the top. Well, that fight with Hulkenberg and Kobayashi, did you know at the time how significant it was? Are these, you know, now they're big names to people in Formula One, but at the time, obviously you were juniors. So did you know that these were very, very talented drivers or do you have no idea at that point? Well, yeah, I knew they were fast and, you know, we've we've seen uh, each other carry a fast and uh, you just, I knew they were fast and I had to beat them. Uh, obviously, I didn't know that we would, you know, that year in Formula 3, there was Sebastian Bumi as well with Muke Motorsport. So four drivers making it to Formula One. Uh, it was, was pretty pretty impressive uh, for, for a year. So yes, it was, um, you know, uh, we didn't know we were going to make it, but definitely it was a very competitive year and uh, a lot of fun. And then, as you say, GP2 Asia Series, you dominated that. And I went into the GP2 Series, which was going well. But was there a, a race at any point where you felt close to the F1 drive? And I know what was happening in F1 would have played a big part, but... Was there any sort of performance you put in where you're like, they can't ignore me now if they want to put someone else in the car? Yeah, I think Spa-Francorchamps was a big one, the future race. Uh, also Germany, uh, where I was running behind Giorgio Pantano uh, in the race and it started raining and we were on slicks and I passed him and won the race, but then got a penalty for overtaking on the yellow flag. I still haven't seen any proof that there were a yellow flag there, but anyway, uh, I think that one, that one was quite big. Um, I... Yeah, sadly, I made a little bit some mistakes uh, in that year. Also, had some uh, technical issues. Um, so I finished fourth in the championship, but I think I could potentially have won it. But I didn't. I didn't think like I could win it in the first year in GP two. So I didn't go in the mindset that I was, you know, fighting for the championship in the first year, uh, which maybe I should have. Uh, but anyway, I just enjoyed attacking and uh, you know making my. Uh, my proof and the year after um, went to GP2 again and um, had a, a very successful start of the season and then if I'm being honest then my mind was just in Formula 1 not anymore in GP2 so um, the, the result went a little bit down in GP2 because I knew I was going to go to Formula 1 uh, and I was just focused on that and it's a bit of a in a hindsight is a mistake you know I should have stayed focused on, on my GP2 but when you've been working that hard to make it to Formula One and, and you have the first phone call saying you're in the, the car next race, uh, then you just focus on that and not anything else. Is that how late it was that you just told it would be the next race or well, it was, did you know it earlier? After Germany 2009, well, I got the phone call from, uh, it was Pat Simons at the time. Uh, so I mean, you, in Hungary, you're in the car. And then on Monday, I got a phone call from Bruno Michel telling me, no, they're giving Nelson a last chance for Hungary. So I was like in, out, in, out. And then finally, after Hungary, uh, I was flying to Enstone actually that day uh, on a British Airways plane. Uh, my phone ring and this time was, you know, okay, that, that time you're in the car for Valencia. Uh, that's Formula One, you know, starting. And um, yeah, I mean, incredible opportunities, but I almost wish that it had come later and I would have, you know, done the, finished the GP2 in a, just get the experience because I got into the team that was in a quite a tricky situation, I would say. Well, I was going to say, we look for moments that would count as a big break in your career. And 
on the surface, you'd imagine this wasn't one because it didn't go so well, but you must have learned a lot. So kind of what was the environment you found yourself in when they when they first put you in the car? Like, what was it like for a young driver? It was it was OK. Honestly, it was OK. The, I wasn't ready. I wasn't told what to do. You know, when you grow through categories, you just think about setting up a car and winning races. And that's what I wanted to do in Formula One, but I didn't know about the marketing, the image, the communication, and so on. And yes, I did. I didn't know, so um, you know, I think I didn't do it right on that side. Uh, also, the the car was probably not the best ever, so it wasn't easy. The performance wasn't far from weren't that far from Fernando, but um, yeah, at the end, you know, with with this the, the crash gate story and everything. When Gerard Lopez came and bought the team, they wanted to clean everything that was here before and that was part of the furniture that you would change. Yeah, when did you know that they would change you though? Because as a young driver, you must have really needed stability and time to improve and to kind of settle in. Like, how quickly did you know that that wasn't likely to happen? Because that kind of helped. Well, it, it was, I was told in Abu Dhabi that all was going okay. You know, I was going to be in next year. And yeah, we were going to be... Um, racing together um, and then obviously everything happened and then Eric Boulier was in charge I was in touch with Eric and he was telling me yeah you know if I think the first test were early February and he says by the end of January if I've got no one that's that's you uh, okay but then on the 31st of January 2010 I got a phone call from Eric saying yeah we've signed Vitaly Petrov um, so there's no more room for you um, so that wasn't there. Yeah, that was an ideal, um, you know, in hindsight, I wish that I, that opportunity hadn't had not come in 2009, but more in 2010. Um, uh, but again, you can't say no. So you just, uh, you take it and you hope for the best. Yeah. And at, at that point, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people then thought that was it for you, that you'd had your F1 chance and, you know, it wasn't going to work out because the team had changed. Uh, and it would have been easy for you to fall away from Formula One at that stage. It's kind of easy now to forget sort of how tough it would have been to bounce back from that. What helped you stay close to F1? Because you went and raced a Ford GT and, and were successful, but it wasn't until, I think, what, halfway through 2010 that you got back in a single-seater. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's all, you know, there were a few, there's been key people in my in my career. And one of them was Jean-Paul Drio, the, uh, the owner of Dams. And um, I was racing Ford GT, and then I don't know how, but I got a phone call from from Dam saying, "You there's that championship, the Auto GP championship, um, and we have a car. There's good prize money, but you race for free, and we get the prize money." And I said, "Okay, you know, uh, sounds great." And then uh, first race was Spa, and I won and I finished the, the reverse grid. I finished second on the race two, something like that. And then uh, Dams was really struggling in GP two, so. Jean-Paul called me and he said, look, I want you in a car in Okonheim. Uh, I want to understand if my engineers are terrible or the drivers are, are nowhere, uh, you know, and they need a kick in the nut. Uh, and so I went to, I went to Hockenheim. Uh, if we look at the end result, it wasn't good on the paper, but uh, we actually had a really good pace. Uh, we, we were very fast. Uh, should have been much better if it wasn't for a meeting with Pastor Maldonado in race two. Uh, so 
Yeah, you know, I think uh, then the weekend finished and Jean-Paul took me in his, uh, in his office in the truck and he says, look, um, I don't know what you're going to do next year, but you know that you have a seat here in GP2 for free. Um, I pay for everything, but I want to win the championship. And that's what happened. You know, the next year we were together. He paid for the full season, GP2 Asia and GP2 Series, and we won both championships. And we launched the team into a, a very successful um, spiral. They won uh, GP2 a few more times. Uh, they know one of the best teams out there. And uh, I must say, I'm, I'm still very proud that I was the one in 2011 coming and, and putting the team back on track and uh, giving the confidence to the engineers and, uh, you know, showing them the way to go forward. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was... Um, with 2007, 2011, and probably 2021 has been three um, very, uh, very exciting years. Yeah, if we if we focus on what Drio did for you, I mean, how rare was that for a team owner to say, you don't have to pay at such an expensive level as well, that, you know, I just want you in my car, even in a junior category. How important, or sorry, how rare was that? Well, that was, that was definitely key that, that meeting with Jean-Paul when he told me he was going to pay for everything. Uh, because it, without that, it would have been, uh, you know, I wouldn't have the funding and I wouldn't have been able to do it and come back to Formula One. So I was also doing some DTM tests at the time uh, with BMW. Uh, the first one was Audi. The second one was with BMW. Uh, Andreas Seidel was at BMW uh, there. And um, yeah, I um, had an offer from BMW to go professional racing driver in DTM uh, or try to take my chance again in GP2 uh, with Dams and, and make it back to Formula One. And uh, I had a discussion with my wife and uh, she says, you don't want to have any regrets. Try, you know, if it works, great. If it doesn't work, well, you do something else. And uh, went to, yeah, went to GP2 with um, with Jean-Paul and, uh, and that, that super crazy successful year. And that set up my uh, comeback to Formula One with Lotus in 2012. Well, I don't think we should overlook as well. You mentioned AutoGP. Um, yeah, you were first and second in your first two races. One again at Magnicore. Uh, you were on the podium for the last four, one, two of those and won the title, even though you'd missed the first four races of the season. So you'd obviously convinced Dams how good you were, but you needed to convince, I guess, other F1 teams to give you another chance. Renault specifically, Lotus as it became. How did talks with them sort of go were you still involved from what had happened previously or had you been kind of cut adrift and you had to come back no completely cut adrift and I had to come back with uh oh no and it's it's very hard to come back in the same team that fired you because you weren't good enough at first you know you know it is uh the engineers were telling the new owners Gio Lopez that the drivers uh, Fernando was good but the other driver was the problem the car wasn't that bad and then eventually you know I, I I come back to GP2, I win everything. And then um, those guys that fired me have to admit and accept that I would come back. So uh, I had the test in Brazil and Abu Dhabi, FP1, two session at the end of 2011. Uh, went pretty well. And then on the 8th of December 2011, it's my wife's birthday, so I remember the date. Uh, I got a phone call from Eric Boulier saying, OK, you got the seat uh, for 2012. You know, and um, obviously I had to I had to try to be as perfect as I could, just to not give any opportunities to the guy that I, you know didn't want me to come back to have argument against me, uh, which which is not an easy situation to be in. 
No, but it must have been so nice to get that call from Eric. And I hope you bought your wife an extra special birthday present when you knew you were going to be an F1 driver again. Um, but then how important was Eric then in that return? Like who who was the key person or who were the key people that kind of opened the door for you to come back? Because like you say, that it's hard for people to admit their mistakes sometimes. Well, you know, it's, it's hard to know exactly who was who. And, and I think, you know, uh, Gerard Lopez was at the end the, the owner and the one, you know, financing or finding the, the finance for the team. So I guess it was his call. Obviously, Eric uh, was involved with DAMS and I was a gravity driver also, uh, which was the management program. So it was also important. Um, but I think really the key there was Jean-Paul Drio giving me the chance to race in GP2 and as well as Christophe de Marjorie, the CEO of Total. Um, that uh, basically told Lotus that um, they were interested in the sponsorship, but uh, the sponsoring, but they wanted a French driver. And Christophe liked me, I liked him a lot. And uh, I think, you know, when I mentioned a few key people through my career, obviously my dad at first, uh, Jean Paul, Christophe, and, um, and another one later on uh, that we may talk about. But uh, those were very, very important people, obviously, um, you know. Um, Eric also, but uh, I would say the, the guy that uh, made it happen, um, what were those? Well, you talk about important people, but then you had some pretty important performances as well when you got in. Like you say, you, you felt the need to make sure no one could criticise you or kind of um, come at you for the way you were driving at the start of 2012. And you put in some stunning performances, chasing podiums and wins in what was a really good car. But what was like your feeling at that time? Was it did you feel like you belonged in F1? Did you feel like you'd secured your future? Or were you feeling under pressure all the time to keep proving yourself? Um, it, it wasn't It wasn't easy. Um, I think it almost came too quick, too good. You know, third race in Bahrain, a podium. Um, then almost winning the European Grand Prix, finishing second in Canada, um, finishing third again in, in Hungary. Uh, and then... Um, then everything was, was on track, uh, but Spa happened. Um, that obviously didn't didn't help. And then you know, yeah, I was I was just trying to. I think I was just trying too hard to win to prove that I could do it, and that's what drove me, you know, into Mark Webber in 2012 at, at Suzuka. I think that yeah, that was my big mistake. Uh, Suzuka 2012. Uh, pushing Mark off. That was bad. In Spa, you know, with, with Lewis, um, I think we could have both 70% me, okay, uh, done better. But I think there were whether we could have escaped that one whilst in in, in, in Suzuka, it was, just, it was just me. So uh, I was, yeah, I mean, when you're so close to winning a race in your first season and you, you know, you got fired and, and you've had to prove everything to come back, uh, I just think I was, I was, just trying too hard and um, that obviously drove me into some trouble and a lot of people are thinking that that was in a good year in 2012 uh, because they remember um, obviously Spa and uh, but also you know as a rookie coming to Formula 1 and having podiums 3 uh, in your first proper year uh, I don't think you can say it was a bad year and I think just uh, the perspective and the image made it harder on me because instead of saying, you know, it's a good year, you've podium, you've been fighting for wins, 
we we focused more on the negative, which was a bit of a shame, and that uh, that drives you down. Well, yeah. How much did Spa then affect you? Because, like you say, you feel like it wasn't all on you. And I remember the stewards' decision at the time saying, because that was actually the first race that I was at in the media center watching, and I I didn't watch it happen and think that you'd on your own done something crazy. But the stewards made the point of the fact that a it, it put people in danger, but b you took out a load of championship contenders, which seems a bit unfair about who was involved. Yeah. Um, how did you feel? Did you feel unfairly treated because a race ban was a, a pretty severe punishment? We hadn't seen one of those in a long time. Yeah, I think the the decision from the steward in Spain in two thousand twelve was wrong. Uh, yes, I you know penalty yes, and you could tell uh, Nico Hülkenberg did the same. Few years later, and he got a 10 grade place penalty in Monza. But I got a race ban, I got a 50,000 euro fine, uh, which was 25% of my salary at the time. Uh, you know, it's huge. And um, yeah, uh, I think it wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, yes, yes, it's biased, it went wrong. Luckily, no one got uh, hurt. But uh, I don't think the, it was justified. But, but then you think Suzuka was. The one, because I remember Mark Webber then, that famous quote that came out afterwards of calling you a first lap nutcase that was tough to shake off for a few years. But was that one you you accepted as more your error than... Spartan? Yeah, that was that was a big mistake uh, from me. I, I accept that. I think Mark went too far and lost a bit my respect that day. Uh, because you don't say that, you know, you just... Um, it happens, we all make mistakes. And, uh, and yes, I made one that day. But I also learned from it. And as I say, you, you know, you you get into that spiral where you've you've been raised, banned for race. You try to come back, do everything perfect, and and it just puts so much pressure. You want to do so well that it's hard. And you know, we we all see that, and um, it happened. It's hard. You know, it, it's very hard. If, if we look at Yuki Tsunoda this year, I really like Yuki a lot, and he started, and he was the new superstar after Bahrain. Uh, and then he went through quite a rough patch, and it shows that it's it's a very fine line, performance-wise, to find where you need to be at, and that's where you need to get the support, which I didn't have because it was always Eric was always like, oh yeah, if you don't do good next race, you you out, so you go into the race and and you know you just it's already a lot of pressure, it's already hard as as it is Formula One, and on top of that, you just need to make sure that you you're perfect and. It's it's easy just to go a little bit too far because perfect meaning okay if I win the race I'm safe but also if you try to win the race and you don't have the car um, it it doesn't go right. Do you think that played a part then in maybe a, a slightly slower start to 2013 because that seemed to be the opposite type of season where it took a little while to get going but then you finished really really strongly. Yeah um, no actually we had a it was uh, in 2012 we used a, a curse recovery map on the braking. Um, with a with a feature of the the low pressure brake pressure that was kept into 2013 for some reason and we didn't realize that until um bahrain so the first two races were really hard because i couldn't you know i couldn't understand why kimi was won australia finished second in china and i think i finished second tw- uh, 10 the two times tenths and something like that but miles away and i just couldn't couldn't understand it and and then in Bahrain, we find that out. So I was on the podium, uh, the race after the rear suspension broke, uh, Silverstone, the front wing broke. Uh, and then we had a bit of a clash with Alan Perman. 
well, a big one on losses because in Silverstone, I was trying to pass a car. Kimi was behind me. They were telling me to let him by. Uh, but I was, was also fighting for my position. And uh, we had a big, big argument in the truck. And I went to Germany 2013, not even talking to, to him and, you know, just doing my business. And that's a race I should have won 50 times if it wasn't for Jules Bianchi car uh, going backwards into the, into the back straight. Uh, and you know that set up a really good um, a really good start for me. It, was that the run that made you really feel safe in F1 though? Those that run of towards the end of 2013 with the performances you were putting in. Yeah, yeah, it was it was very strong. I was well established. It was full of confidence. The car was amazing. Uh, and then 2014 happened, and that in my career, I think that was the that was the the year that decided I was never going to be winning races in Formula One, just because you know the car was such a such a terrible car. Uh, the team had no more finance. I didn't know that was spending 160 million when we only had 120 of budget. Uh, so yeah, then you know um, that year was was a complete write off. And then 2015 was better, but still very complicated. Then we didn't know if, if you know, I'd, so I learned that after, but in 2015, I had a contract with, with Lotus uh, for 2016, but also they had signed Pastor and Julian Palmer already. So they had three drivers signed for 2016. Um, so yeah, I did, you know, I, I, I went for the Haas adventure, uh, which looked like a good project. Um, it was good at the beginning and then obviously the end was a bit more. Uh, painful. Well, yeah, I was going to say, how tough was that move to make? Because that was leaving the one team you'd been with the whole time in Formula One and that you'd proven yourself with and, and you'd become the team leader at and then you'll go to a, a brand new project that you don't know how it's going to go. No, exactly. Um, but it was it was a good challenge. I was 30 at the time uh, and it was a good contract that I was going to sign with, with Haas. Um, I thought the whole project was very interesting uh, and there was also a way that, you know, you could get linked to Ferrari uh, by by being with Haas um, and developing the team, so yeah, it was uh, for me it was a very nice challenge, uh, and uh, I don't regret it. The only thing I regret is that when it was time that you know we wanted to play in a bigger player league, uh, like mid 2018, I realized that was not going to happen, and, and no changes were made, and. Therefore, it was just going to go backwards. You mentioned the Ferrari link there. Was, was that the main driving factor? No. If, if you thought maybe the way Lotus hadn't worked out and you weren't going to be in a race winning car, that being close to Ferrari might be your way to get into a, a top team? Well, it was definitely it was easier to do that than being with Renault. Uh, and we didn't, at the time I signed with Haas, we didn't know if Renault was committed or not. We had no idea where the team was going. Um, so... Also for me, it was um, yeah, it was like a safe, safe bet in terms of, of pursuing in Formula One, and as I say, it was it was a great it was a great advantage for three years. Did you have any other options at the time though when you left Lotus to join Haas, or was it the only real one on the no, table it was just, for you? It was just Lotus and Haas, and um, there weren't uh, there weren't anything else. Well, you mentioned that like the car and team did get less competitive the longer you were there. Do you feel that kind of hurt your reputation? Was it frustrating to 
be a driver that was probably reaching his peak as a driver, but the machinery he was in was going the other way. Yeah, probably. Probably, you know, people don't realize how much the car does in Formula One. And, um, you know, I think this year, seeing Kevin Magnussen winning in IMSA and myself doing great in IndyCar, people have realized that, um, you know, it wasn't a driver. Uh, it was the car. Um, but it's when you don't know in details, it's obviously very hard. And everyone says, oh, Lewis Hamilton is incredible. Yes, he is incredible, but he's also got the best car the best engineers, the best crew, uh, as does Max. And without that, you know, um, look at Fernando Alonso. Uh, when he was with McLaren, he was, you know, two-time world champion. Fernando is an incredible driver. And when the car was just not there, he was out of Q1 every weekend. And once in a while, he can do miracle. Things, you know, go really well, but it's once in a while. And um, obviously, yeah, then your reputation is hurt. And, you're not, uh, you're not an interesting uh, guy anymore on the market. Well, you talk about miracles. I mean, let's let's get on to the, the Bahrain crash. Like, how do you view that in the context of your career? Because is it a big break for you in terms of the fact you survived it? Or, or is it negative that people now remember you for that rather than driving things? And the fact that you had to go through it at all? No, I think, um, I think for me it's a positive experience. Uh because you know, um, I came up, came out alive um, with a lot of respect from from people. They've seen how you know how much I've fought for my career, uh, but also for my life in, in that incident. And <clears throat> came back to racing uh, with probably a different mentality uh, and enjoy, and I've been very successful. So um, the whole story is is a very inspiring story you know and i think people yes they um they would yes they would always remember that crash you know i think it's it's an image that uh, that was around the world and it's been very big but they also see what i what i did before and what i'm able to do now and the fact that i uh, i don't give up and i think in terms of people there's a lot of people coming to me and saying you're an inspiration and that's you know that that is for me that is crazy to imagine that I can be an inspiration because it's such a beautiful thing. Uh, but yes, you know, I went through, uh, I went through hell, came back and had a few, had a lot of reason to stop racing. But I said, no, you know, that's my passion. That's what I like doing. And I want to go back and uh, went back and uh, yeah, become successful in the US. And now it's just incredible the support that I can have over the race weekend in, in the US. And how many fans and you know it it's just an amazing well you mentioned there was a lot of reasons for you to stop what were your first thoughts about racing after the crash whenever you first thought about being in a car again or, or what you were going to do next what was your first well impression? in all fairness i never thought i was going to stop um because i wanted to go back to abu dhabi you know do the last race so i was pushing everything so for me it was clear that I wanted to keep, to keep racing, you know. Uh, there were so many people telling me I could stop, I could work, go and work with the FIA, I could be TV consult, you know, do TV and do all of that. But at the end, I said, no, guys, you know, I want to go racing. And uh, I had to uh, had to put together the deal to to make it with Dailycoin and, uh, and go from there, you know, being far from my family, uh, making probably zero money and... Uh, going racing and, and finding, going back to the roots, which, which I enjoy, you know, uh, 
no no personal trainer with me on my own doing you know my flight picking my rental car going the old days old school and driving my bus and actually i really enjoyed it and no i've just um I'm joining one of the biggest team in, in motorsport, Andretti, you know, uh, such a huge name and such an honor to be racing for Michael and Mario and the, the family that, um, you know, I think for me, Bahrain was a positive experience because um, I came out of it, uh, went, went back to, to the roots of racing and uh, you no know, being able to, um, to leave something incredible and bring the family in the US and, and share moments that uh, we couldn't have shared in Formula One. No, it's a, it's a very different world. And, and you knew you were leaving it before that Bahrain crash. But And I know you'd been talking to IndyCar teams by that stage. But where was it all at? Did you know you were definitely moving to IndyCar before that accident? Or was, was your career still up in the air at that point? It was still up, up in the air. Uh, we had to put the deal with, with Dale Coin together, uh, you know, uh, making sure that it was going to work. Uh, obviously, Dale being, Dale being a small team, uh, they uh, financially, they um, they didn't, you know, they needed some backup, some funding. So I had to bring a sponsor in uh, to make it work, uh, which is the last very important guy in, in my career. Um, Tej Taddy, the, the CEO and founder of MindMaze, uh, because without him, I don't think the deal could have happened in Indica. And without that deal, I wouldn't have signed an Andretti. And, um, you know, being able to go and, and maybe fight for championships. So really it's... Um, yeah, it was a, it was a big decision. It was a big risk as well, you know, coming from Formula One with the image of Formula One. Things could have gone wrong. I could have been scared. I could not have adapted to it. But um, I think it's completely the opposite. I've, I've enjoyed driving it, and uh, I'm yeah, I'm ready to to tackle it all, including the Indy 500 and Texas and and so on. And uh, obviously, uh, get a win soon. It's been more than ten day, ten years now. And the championship as well, you know, having uh, IndyCar championship would be uh, would be a pretty cool way. And um, you know, again, Formula One was incredible for me. Ten years, never thought I, would, I could do that. Um, obviously, I wish that I had won races and championship. But again, um, I'm proud of what I did, uh, which is the most important. Were you reluctant to leave F1 when? that deal was up no, or, or were you looking forward to the fresh start at IndyCar? I was, I was done uh, from the first race in 2020. I was done. Uh, we had not done any testing in four months. I went out in free practice. First lap, I lost the break in turn three. And in the race, again, lost the break. And I thought, you know what? That, that team is going nowhere. Um, and there's no there's no other opportunity because, you know, there's nothing you can show with, um, with that car. So... Um, I'm an expensive driver. I'm 34. There's plenty of, of young guys coming through uh, from different driver academy, Red Bull, Mercedes, Ferrari. So there's no real room for me. So um, yeah, uh, it's, it's quite funny. I was um, I was sitting right here when I was talking to my wife uh, one day at 7 p.m. and I say, you know, I'm not I'm not carrying on with Haas. Um, I'm done and I'm gonna do something else and. By the time I finished my sentence, Gunther called and told me that uh, you know we he needed funding, he needed sponsoring, he needed driver to pay drivers, so he couldn't keep it going. And I said okay, but I was um, yeah for me it was already I was gone and it was finished in Formula One. 
Yeah, and, and like you say, though, the way that that story's gone since and stepping into the IndyCar, like, it's a, it's a very different world. Could you imagine it going so well? Because, like you say, you, your whole life has now changed. We're talking. I know people might have heard in the background your wife sorting things out. You're about to go over to Miami. You've been packing the house up. I mean, it's it's all completely different now for you. Yeah, it is a, it is a new, a complete new chapter. Uh, I I mean, even in my wildest dream, I don't think it could have gone as, as good as it went this year. Uh, from the pleasure, so very selfishly enjoying driving, uh, pole position podiums, uh, to the support from the fans. I mean, you know, Chicago, New York, anywhere I walk in this in the streets, I get selfies every 300 meters. Um, it's been incredible. Uh, all the grandstands shouting at my name, uh, the driver intro and, and the race course, and uh, going into um, a huge team. Uh, so yes, I mean it's. Uh, First, it's a very, very exciting uh, adventure. Uh, we're going in the US for at least two years, but I, I feel like we, we're going to stay a little bit longer because um, you know there's, uh, there's a lot we can do and uh, drivers uh, tends to be able to be very competitive until later than Formula One in, in America. Yeah, and I know you've got uh, a lot ahead of you in IndyCar, but we've talked a lot about what you've achieved previously as well. So just to wrap this up, what would you say has been the biggest lesson you've learned from your career? But whether it's in Formula One, whether it was in another series, just what are the main things that have maybe shaped you to be who you are today? I think it's 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 the resilience through criticism, uh, tough time, good time, and to never give up. And I think that's um, yeah, that's been for me. That's been uh, something that uh, if I can uh, if I can give to my kids and and be an inspiration in that way. I think that's very important. You know, people always ask me, "What what's your advice when you start go-karting? I say, never give up. Always try. You know, you don't always know what's around the corner. Yeah, I don't think anyone can doubt your resilience after everything you've been through, you know, both earlier in your career and more recently, obviously, in, in Bahrain. And then the way you've bounced back, it's been great to see. So, uh, Roman, really looking forward to seeing how IndyCar goes for you next season. And thank you so much for giving us your time and telling us your story. Thank you. My pleasure. 